And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. And in true Fascinating Nouns style, we are going to celebrate Halloween in a slightly unusual way. We are going to talk about creepy corridors. Why do corridors always seem to evoke this sense of dread in us? And it turns out that there is a corridor expert, Roger Luckhurst, from Brickbeck University of London, who wrote a book on corridors, The History of Corridors, Why Do They Make Us so anxious. Why are these commonly and routinely used in horror films to kind of evoke a sense of dread? We're going to talk about that. And then we are going to do a bonus episode for the Patreon feed, which you can find at danieljglenn.com. You can find links to it there. Or if you want to go straight to Patreon, backslash danieljglenn. We're going to do a bonus episode on the zombie in pop culture. You'll remember I did an episode with Dr. Cosentino of UCLA about voodoo and, and Haiti and, and the whole idea of what a zombie is, what voodoo is. But here, we're going to talk about pop cultures. and What is the influence zombies have had on pop culture and vice versa? What influence have pop culture had on zombies? It's going to be very interesting on the Patreon feed. Check it out. Uh, so let's get right into this because I'm fascinated with this stuff. Roger, thank you so much for being on the show today. You know, it's funny. I'm looking at your screen name, uh, for Twitter. I love it. You know, it's funny. We're talking on Skype and, you know, my name is from, uh, yeah, I started this account, you know, 10, 12 years ago when it was okay to be the funk Lord, <laughs> which is, it's a, I mean, it's a, sometimes it's a great conversation piece. Other times, you know, I'm sure people, it's decide, embarrassing. Yes. Right. <laughs> So what's what's the pro frog? I mean, it sounds like you're right in well, there. Well, it's it's uh, it's lovely, isn't it? But yeah. it's actually Prof Rog, so it's uh, it's <laughs> Professor Roger. But, it, but as soon as I chose it, yeah. my uh, my wife just said, "Oh, pro frog, what's right. that about?" <laughs> damn! Oh, damn! <laughs> Too late. <laughs> I love it. Is it cool if I refer to you as the pro frog from here on out? Oh, you can do if you like. Yeah, okay. I would never, I would never refer to you as the amateur frog. You're the pro frog to me. From here <laughs> exactly. on out, you're exactly. no amateur, yeah. sir. Uh, so speaking of amateur, so now let me. I, I want to see if I understand this correctly. So you have quite an eclectic range of expertise. So uh, yes. So you're a professor um, of modern and contemporary literature at Birkbeck University of London. What is the difference between modern and contemporary literature? <laughs> they sound like oh, synonyms. Uh, like, yeah, yeah, no, yes, they they do, don't they? Well, yeah. there's um, it, it's not a title that I actually chose, but uh, <laughs> modern literature is yeah. is something that I think is felt to end uh, around 1945 these days. Okay, uh, and the cont- contemporary literature is something that you know kind of gets going after that point. So it's it's a like a it's a really irritating um, academic. Um, noodling kind of uh, distinction. That, um, sure. I just always say professor of modern literature because you know people always ask exactly your question. Right. What? <laughs> right. But but if someone has so so someone could come to you and say like oh so what do you teach oh I teach modern literature and they're like well I had a contemporary question so I can't ask you. Yeah. But then okay, you're like so, no 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 hold on I'm also yeah. an expert in contemporary literature. So so here's a good example is that when I went to university my I did a course called literature. Uh, from 1880 to the present day, and the last book was 1930. So, so in a sense, you know, people were academics were very suspicious of anyone who did anything too, too current. You know, so right. um, and you know, anything contemporary is is what uh, the worst insult you can you can use is presentist. You are very <laughs> presentist. <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that that's why. <laughs> Wow, that's funny that like it's that it's like that. I mean, because you also, um, and hopefully we'll get to this a little bit later on, but you also wrote a book about the zombies in pop culture, which is kind of as so present as you can get. 
you know yes present but also old <laughs> right right so so i think you know because it goes all the way back to you know the 19th century that's kind of what i like doing is um it might be something very current or very contemporary but i always think it's uh, it's about adding the kind of history understanding where things come from right uh that kind of through line idea is is really important i think oh i i totally agree i mean it's it's kind of exactly what i try to do with this show which is which is why um, you know, when, when, you know, I'm going to be perfectly frank here. You don't, you're not going to, hopefully you won't find my, my honesty disrespectful in any way, but when it comes to this, the topic of corridors, one could sure. easily start to glaze over when it comes to talking oh, about easily. corridors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Many people do back away from me quite fast. Yeah. <laughs> right. But <laughs> what's, what's actually crazy is as you learn the history of the corridor, it's pretty fascinating because like your book reads... <laughs> Like it's like a history book, but it's strangely during these very specific points in history, the corridor becomes different things to different people. And so what I'd like to do if we, if we could is because this is coming out around Halloween and my favorite aspects of the book are kind of the both the weirder and the more yep. like like horror themed, scary, the the dread, the angst that you get into. Um, Perfect. I want to get into that. Definitely, I want to hit that pretty hard. But before we do that, we kind of have to talk about the history of the corridor, which again was surprisingly interesting because um, these are shown a lot of disrespect in the modern era. Really, you know, like like you talk it really. You start out the book kind of saying like open plan offices have kind of done away with the corridor. So we're in a very um, to use one of your words a, a non carotic. Is am I saying pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, that'll do. Okay. <laughs> anti-caridic. And Critic. I say anti-caridic or non-caridic. Right. Uh, but you know, that, that, this is my this is my attempt to get that ridiculous word into the English language, <laughs> which I think might work. I like it. So, well, define it. Let's get people on board with this thing. You got to give them a reason to use it. So, when can people use this word, and what in God's name does it mean? <laughs> okay. So, my theory would be that um, up until around about the 1960s. Um, for about 150 years, uh, large buildings and also private domestic houses were constructed around corridors. Uh, that was a way of distributing space, uh, a way of maintaining privacy mm. uh, so that people, particularly in England, where the class system was all important, uh, were, you know, the corridor allowed you to keep separate from um, your annoying children, your annoying wife. You're really annoying servants and everyone was kind of distributed safely. Um, since the 1960s, what we've had is a kind of move towards um, open plan in offices. So they got rid of corridors, uh, open uh, living. So loft living is all about uh, demolishing corridors, getting rid of it, living in open spaces, living collectively. Uh, and even in um, if you go to a hospital now, you don't wait in a corridor. You wait in a very large atrium. Uh, and the worst thing that can happen to you in England uh, in the National Health Service is to be left alone in a corridor. This is kind of you get headlines about what a nightmare this might be. Uh, so we've so we've become very, very anti uh, corridor, anti caridic is the word that right. I quite like to use. Right. Um, my, my editor was always a bit concerned when I when he's saying, how's the book going? I say, well, I'm a bit stuck in the pre-Caridic era at the moment, but I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting on to the Caridic era, and you know, soon we will be at the post-Caridic, which right. is where we are. <laughs> and hopefully, I mean, because this is really a pre-Caridic work, and you know, as your career moves along, and as this word enters into the zeitgeist, you could possibly be a professor of modern and contemporary Caridic um, literature. I mean, that's where we're kind of going with yeah. it, right? Well, absolutely. Yeah. Well, one would hope so. Right. Uh, I mean, there are kind of a, f a few people around uh, the world, actually, who um, uh, were kind of I mean, one of the one of the key things that got me going on this was that I, I, I was looking at the film The Shining. Right. And obviously the corridors in Shining are really kind of crucial. Right. And I wanted to know why that was so disturbing, uh, unnerving and so on. And I sort of hunted around. Uh, looking for things on the corridor and I came across this really um, wonderful sentence that someone uh, an architectural historian had written in the 1970s saying the history of the corridor is yet to be written um, so you know that was a, a real kind of red rag to a bull 
Uh, and I discovered that really there were only two or three other people uh, around the world who'd, who'd got interested in this in any way at all. Uh, and none of them were writing in the English language either. So that sense of um, thinking, yeah, we, we, we kind of walk, we occupy these spaces all the time. Uh, and yet no one thinks about what they are, why, why they're here, how they got here, where are they going? And all of those sorts of um, questions became quite kind of, um, I became a bit like the ancient mariner, you know, stopping people right, and, right. <laughs> and, and, and bore, boring them to death outside right. um, buildings saying, you know, have you thought about corridors? Well, and uh, I, so, so I yeah, imagine so, the original quote was, thankfully, comma, the book on corridors has yet to be written. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it, yeah, it was more about, I mean, people, people are really interested in doorways and thresholds because sure. they're so obviously symbolic. They're sexy, yeah, um, yeah, they get all the press. Yeah, and, you know, there's, there's lots of kind of, uh, yeah, they do, they really do. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, the kind of the spaces that, are, that stretch between, you know, important doorways uh, for entry and, and, and where you want to get to, no one ever talks about that space. It's literally dead space. Right. So that's what, what I became very interested in looking at. Well, it's like the, it's like the working man's, you know, architectural symbol, the corridor. You know, it, it connects all the people. It's behind the scenes, um, but doorway to doorway, you got to get to there via a corridor. You know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it kind of it kind of depends. You know, what sort of um, era you're in, because sometimes corridors were absolutely central to uh, our beliefs. So that in the 19th century. We had quite a utopian idea about corridors, that they were going to change and transform us and, and turn us into better people, um, whether they were in asylums or schools or hospitals. Um, and, you know, later it becomes a space which is, as you say, just an embarrassing dead space. It's, an, it's a necessary structure that you hide away um, in, in back rooms so that people can get to fire exits quickly. Uh, but largely we want these kind of big flowery, atriums that we um, uh, sit around in ostentatiously right. rather than scurrying along corridors. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it, I love that you brought up The Shining because, you know, it, it, we're, I want to get that. I want to get to that. I think that's a great place to start and then we'll go into mm. the prehistory. But, you know, just a, it's funny when, when I think of corridors and I think I always think scary. Uh, that's me, and I'll tell you why. Two reasons. Number one, I, I, until so I'm, I happen to be a, a big Clue fan. The, I guess you call it Cluedo okay. in in the yeah. UK. Um, but it, it, until I mastered it, which I recently mastered it, and I'm borderline unbeatable. <laughs> but until that point, right. like I love that game, and you travel around in corridors. The entire game takes place in the corridors and also in the rooms. So you're going from room to room via these corridors, but that's where you walk around. Um, and right. also in my grandmother's house when I was a kid, she had a. Ve it's actually a very short corridor. I mean, it, it was you know maybe ten feet long, and it connected four rooms, uh, three bedrooms, and a bathroom. Right. And then there's a long staircase that goes down into the front room to the front door. And I remember I would always, as a kid, like if I was in my grandmother's room or if I had to go into my grandpa's room, it was right across the hall. Uh, I would always run down the stairs because it was always dark up there. And I always had this weird vision that something was coming out of one of those rooms and was going to catch me. Right. Unless I got down yep. the stairs really quickly. Right. Like, that's yep. silly. But I, And as a kid, I always had that. And maybe I was just because I was into, you know, horror films and everything. But it was always really dark and whatever. And what I like about The Shining, and I think that this is a perfect example and a great place to start, is that – the movie's terrifying. It's extreme. It's br brightly lit. You know, this stuff happens during the day. But, you know, Kubrick, the, the director, does this great job of creating this dread and angst of what is around the next corner. And so mm. you, you don't know what's in this in this place. And also, it's incredibly disorienting. It's like a labyrinth, a maze. So the last thing you want to do is be stuck in a maze with with something that is going to possibly kill you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think, um, I mean, The Shining was is the starting point for lots of people, I think, you know, whenever they uh, ask me what I'm working on, they nearly always go to The Shining first as the as the kind of thing. And that, you know, that's where I started, too. And I began to try and work out you know, why that is, because, as you say, it's a horror film. And yet there are no shadows in those corridors. There are no there's no kind of darkness there at all. Uh, and 
It's it's to do, I think, I mean, there are several reasons why that is so iconic. I mean, the first one is that Kubrick was using a brand new way of looking. So this is one of the first films that uses the Steadicam as a new technology. So this completely smooth, gliding kind of camera. Uh, but the, the amazing thing that Kubrick worked out was that um, whereas all the other films that had used it beforehand uh, used it at chest height. He turned the whole rig upside down. So you're in an, an inch above the floor and you're gliding along the floor. And it's a completely inhuman perspective that's smooth and um, completely beyond any kind of human. In other words, it is the kind of menacing threat of the hotel itself. And also, as you say, is that it looks like you're in a kind of, I mean, corridors should be logical and hotel corridors should be logical uh they're after all there to easily find your way to your room but there's something completely confounding about um the hotel corridors in the shining to the extent if you go on youtube you can find hundreds of short films that are conspiracy films about what is being spelt out by the camera for example um what is being kind of put together in mysterious ways why room 237 why isn't it room 217 as it is in the book all of these kind of conspiracy theories about about this and there's just something very kind of um brilliant i think about how he shoots those corridors not only because the one thing that you only spot if you've watched it several million times uh, is that he keeps shifting um the carpet um around so that actually the pattern is is sometimes open towards the camera and sometimes shut towards the camera. So he keeps changing perspective on you in really subtle, unnerving ways. Uh, and these corridors are kind of very, very, you know that they're weird and unnatural, but they look like everyday kind of life. And I think he captures something there about very modern spaces. I mean, I always think that, uh, particularly in American hotels you know those large kind of mega hotels um there's something when you step out of your hotel room and you look either you know down these endless corridors either way there's something absolutely annihilating about them you know that you're complete you're completely kind of transient um you're exactly the same as all the other people who've been in your room but also are right now in the rooms next door to you it wouldn't really matter if you went into the wrong room because it's probably an identical person there at some point. You know, that sort of sense of, of, of you really, it's such a scale that you're losing your sense of self. And I think that's what that, that, that those kind of mega corridors in, in hotels, which are so specifically American, actually, they were invented for American World Expos. Uh, it's where we get that corridor pattern from. Um, you know, there's something that, that completely annihilates us, I think, as we as we walk out of our room. Or maybe that's just academic conferences I go to. <laughs> I, you know, I, I completely agree. You know, it's funny. There's so much in what you just said I want to unpack really quickly. But the, the most recent is you talk about, you know, there being an identical person in the room next to you. Like, if that's not a <laughs> doppelganger film, like a horror, you know, where you walk into the wrong right. room and you're staring at right. yourself, like, that's terrifying, you know. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I love that. That's a great, that's a really great idea for a movie. I think we should write it. We'll talk off camera about, uh, you know. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the other thing is that carpeting. I didn't give much thought to carpeting, but I interviewed uh, a guy named George Pendle, also from the UK. He did a book on uh, um, uh, oh, Jack Parsons, who, who did, he was part of Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of his yeah. other things that he talks about is airport carpeting. He actually collects pictures of airport carpeting, which seems silly at first until you start looking at the airport carpeting and realizing that there are very extraordinarily specific requirements that go into making airport carpeting. It has to be not be noticed, but still have a pattern and be certain colors. So if you spill stuff on it, no one will know. Mm. I mean, it's very weird. And so when you talk about the that how unnerving the carpeting is in The Shining, it is extraordinarily true. And it, again, it is chosen for a very specific purpose. And and I I agree with you because the carpeting is my favorite part of of that movie, and it is unnerving. And uh, with your conspiracy theory thought, there's a lot that goes. So there's a documentary called Room Two Thirty Seven, which I believe you're probably referencing, sure. and it is yeah. a fantastic documentary. And you know, one of the things that it talks about is the carpeting and also how confusing the layout is because they have right. because you know Danny when he's driving his big wheel. 
he's going around in circles and, and whatever. And at one point, he goes through the big, like, open room where Jack is sure. typing on the typewriter. So the corridors open up into these big spaces. So you have a frame of reference. You know where he's going. And they've shown how, conf- like, someone has mapped out how confusing the layout is. And it doesn't make any sense. And I think, to the point, purposefully, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it oh, is, sure. you know, it is supposed to confound. It's supposed to confuse. It's supposed to trap. And, you know, that's that's amazing. And it's these corridors that funnel you towards whatever this menacing entity is. It's funneling you towards it or danger. You know, so it's like, yeah, that's yeah, what the quarters absolutely. are really doing. And that's really terrifying. And, and again, mm. and, and as he's going through, I think there's this, you know, you talk about in the book, there's, you know, what, what angst is, the definition of angst and this idea that, you know, the, the terror and, and fear that a human being feels is the anticipation of something around a corner or danger that is just an inch away. And I think part of that is similar, and it's, this goes with The Shining as well, is you're in, like, like if you're in an, an empty office building, it's kind of scary. Like, if you're like if you're a night watchman, and maybe this is, again, because I watch so many horror movies, I would never want a night watchman job because the building's empty. Right. It's supposed to be when it's safe. That's when I'm the most terrified. <laughs> you know? Why? Sure, Why? And I think it goes to this <laughs> angst and what Danny's getting away from in the corridors. I think it all, it all goes together. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think, you know, fear or, or – or, it's not – in The Shining, it's not fear. So it's not kind of um, jump – shock kind of right, uh, terror right. it is as you say it's kind of uh, angst or or dread which is the anticipation of something and of course what a corridor does is it literally has openings off right. off it particularly a hotel corridor which which all of which represent potential for something to kind of leap out at you <laughs> right, and yeah. ever since ever since the shining of course what you have is the kind of classic tracking shot down a corridor that's what defines kind of modern horror i mean it was kind of beginning to be there already but something like halloween 2 which is only really takes place in a hospital corridor and um you know the 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 kind of monster keeps kind of coming back from various sort of empty voids that you walk past in corridors if you think about one of the most successful horror films of um, the 21st century paranormal activity that film is basically staring at a slightly open door for an hour and a half uh and um and occasionally the door moves on its own and you're completely freaked out this is you know how how the hell did this does does this film work it's the void just beyond the bed you know the half open door there is something that's going to emerge from that space eventually and that jump shot uh shock takes 90 minutes to arrive and it's kind of worth it for the for the moment at the end of the film but it's all about just simply staring at an empty space so that kind of you know the story you told of being a small child and being terrified of a of a of a landing. Right. I think all of us feel that it's just this space of potential, uh, and it's a non-space. It's not. It's not. It, it, it's not like in Cluedo. You have to go into a room mm. to commit a murder. You can't commit murders in corridors. Right. And yet that's the thing that we're most frightened of because it's dead space. It's non-space. Right. Anything could come out. It's, like, it's almost like a portal to another world. And that world is your imagination. At least it was for me as a kid, you know, like, yeah, right. <laughs> which is why, which is why in Poltergeist, it is the corridor uh-huh. that turns into a portal to the other kind of world. Yeah, yeah. So she gets dragged through this portal, which is clearly the domestic corridor itself. Right. Uh, so, yeah. So, so, so I think that idea has been picked up a lot. And, you know, again, in something like uh, The Haunting of Hill House, which was a big hit on Netflix last year, um, that whole the initial film, The Haunting, uh, is all about the corridor space. So you don't actually see any of the ghosts in the original film. You just hear things happening in the corridor that you never see and um, Mike Flanagan's film kind of turns that into a much more realized kind of sense of angst and dread about the corridor space of the of the house itself right well I think it's because you know whether you're in the corridor and walking down like a long corridor and each room has a potential portal to you know badness mm. right like evil you know. sure that's one way to look at it but if you're in a room and there's a big corridor like if you're you know if you're in a room and there's a big corridor outside there's also this sense that corridors as we'll get into in a little bit were when they were original their their original purpose was to get from one place to another quickly so you don't have to walk through other room after room after room you can just go very quickly 
down right. one long landing. But again, it's like a funnel. So whatever is out there, it, the quickest way to get to you in the room is through the corridor. So, if, you know, and you talk about this in zombie films as a quick little precursor. That's where that's where you don't want zombies to be is in a corridor coming towards you <laughs> as fast as possible, funneling towards your room, <laughs> you know. And yeah, I think it, sure. So, so it's got, you know, there's two ways to look at a corridor that way. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, so, so here's, the, here's the historic change. I think for a long time in the 19th and 20th century, ghost uh, stories, say, set in large institutions or in hotels, they're all about the history of particular rooms. So something uh. bad happens in rooms. Uh, and you're, you're quite right that there is a sort of sense of anxiety about something maybe advancing uh, to you from, from the outside. But usually the explanation for the haunting or for the terror in a is is to do with the room so i'm thinking of you know number 13 by mr james is a famous story of a disappearing room in a hotel that you know something bad happened and so on and then what happens in the shining i think is that it's reversed so you know you do go inside room 237 and something happens in there but it's not entirely clear what or to whom that happens um but it's the nothing compared to the dread and the anxiety of being in a completely perfectly brightly lit corridor outside that is the modern angst you know it's 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 uh, it looks like the world to to us the world we occupy and something has gone wrong with it in a way that isn't in the kind of you know clanking chains and gothic kind of old mode but is much more about these spaces that we occupy all the time uh, that's where we, we we suffer the most horror. No, I, I think that that's exactly right. And, you know, kind of what we're talking about, there is a really cool history to all of this because, what you know, what we're talking about is the labyrinth, which is, you know, the minotaur was at the center of the labyrinth in Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the terror at the end, getting lost. You don't want to get lost in the maze because the minotaur is going to get you. You know, the idea sure. of, of tra trapped maze corridors goes back, you know, extraordinarily far. And, and so I, I love that idea. So, you know, that's ingrained in, in, in our culture, you know, since since the beginning, really. And, you know, when you – in the book, you, you know, when you, you kind of go into the, the, the first uh, – karotic? Am I saying that correctly? Karotic. <laughs> okay, I'll get it right. It's my American accent. <laughs> yeah. What do you want from me? Karotic. No, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, and, you know, the, these – any kind of karotic structure. I, I love that it goes back to, you know, kind of the ritualistic spaces. You know, people who were going through a corridor or a maze for a specific reason to be initiated into an order – or, you know, this kind of mystical idea of a passage or, or a trail. Uh, I, I really like that idea. I did an episode on, on the Winchester Mystery House, and that kind of brings mm. all of that together. You know, it's about ghost stories. It's about, you know, it, the person I interviewed talked about how there were a lot of Masonic beliefs and actually the way that the layout of the, of the Winchester Mystery House is actually about, you know, rituals and initiating into the Masonic uh, beliefs. Mm. So there's, there's a lot when it comes to the mysticism where critic structures kind of fall into, into that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I I, I think architectural um, uh, kind of historians um, do use the kind of phrase corridor um, for for those kind of structures. Um, I, unsurprisingly, I became completely pedantic about um, <laughs> about whether you can use these terms or not. Uh -huh. um, I mean, they, they're certainly they're they're critic like, but but basically, um, if you're entering into uh, a Greek temple or you're entering ritual space in ancient Egypt, you're basically being kind of you are being funneled. So you start in a kind of large sort of open space and then you go to a kind of narrower kind of um, columned uh, corridor, if you like, or, or, or kind of passageway. And then the more initiated you get, the kind of narrower it gets until you get to the kind of sacrum the, the the sacred kind of heart of this whole kind of process and it's still i mean that happens now when i went to uh, luxor in in egypt a kind of sense of of being conducted through a series of ritual spaces you know columns of sphinxes and then the entrance part put point to the, the the temple and then being led by your guides uh into the the kind of the sacred kind of tomb 
if you like, at the very end of this process. It felt like a successive kind of series of being constrained and controlled. And in, in particularly in Greek ritual, this was all about um, really disorienting you and um, making you feel a kind of sense of sacred dread or anticipation that you were going to confront. You're going to see the face of the, the goddess herself. And this sort of um, this build up uh, a series of kind of narrowing uh, spaces is something that nearly every culture around the world has used uh, for their sort of sacred structures. And you see it still in um, in churches, too, you know, that sense of of going into a kind of narrow um, nave like structure and then the, the kind of hidden away altar space maybe behind a you know a kind of uh, a special kind of uh, screen uh, and then you know the, the place that you're not allowed to go to unless you have been initiated so there's lots of these kind of structures that go across culture which are I think very charitic we kind of love being um, experiencing this immersal, I think, this being being immersed in a particular kind of space. Um, so there are lots of art installations as well recently that are all about labyrinths that are being lost inside kind of labyrinths. And you got start getting slightly panicky as you see all these false doors and you can't kind of get out. And that's the point, you know, people really love being inside that kind of uh, immersive, disorienting, slightly scary space. Yeah, well, I just love the word immersal. I just think that that's a funny word. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, you know, it's funny because corridors, when you think about, you know, the way you kind of describe it, it almost seems like by nature, you know, that in charitic structures have this innate dread, anxiety-inducing quality. And I think, you know, twofold. Number one, it's interesting that it was churches and all, you know, and, and sort of sacred religious spaces that had this. Because at the, you know, towards the end of the book, you talk about, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, like when we talk about mm. that's very, it's a very religious belief. You know, as we die, we're going sure. to go towards the light. You know, you're going down this charitic structure. Mm. It may not be a corridor. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but that's, I, I just found that parallel to be extraordinarily interesting because, you know, it's, the corridor, you're walking down it towards something. And in all of these stories and everything we're talking about, there is some, you know, we're anticipating something at the end. Whether, you know, in a horror movie, it's a surprise. We don't know what's coming out of the doors. But, you know, if you're dying and you believe you're going to heaven or some other afterlife, well, you, you, you may be, you don't know what that is. You know, it's that unknown that you're slowly moving towards. You know, it's almost, and the same way that like in a prison as you, or, or in, you know, if you're going out to the noose and you're walking down a corridor, you're like no one's anticipating getting hanged, but you know, right. Right. there's that anticipation yeah. as you walk down the corridor towards this inevitable, you know, unknown in a way. And I think that it's just interesting that that corridor since the beginning have had this kind of innate quality almost, you know. Yeah, well, I think so. Again, you know, there are there are ways of distinguishing um, different sort of experiences here. So, you're you're right in the sense that the the, the sacred kind of uh, corridor is is really taking you from point A to point B at the end. Uh, so, so you're heading towards, in our case, the very modern version of this is, you know, as you say, heading towards the light, uh, and people who have near death experiences which has kind of only been collected and under that term since 1970s. Um, but they talk about kind of walking towards a particular end point. And I think, I think that's right. So that's a ritual kind of space. And it's the same as you enter a church, you are kind of heading towards, you know, the altar, for example. But what's so terrifying, say, about The Shining is that there isn't, the, the, these corridors aren't for an end point. They're, they're to distribute space off, off them. Um, so that mm. this, this is a very modern kind of corridor. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by um, the um, what, what I technically would call the double loaded tangential corridor, which is the um, which is the doors on both sides double loaded, uh, and uh, it's it's to distribute space sideways and what uh, rather than from end to end, which is what the ritual kind of space is all about. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, I yeah. think there are different a different axes of experience here. So actually, I think end to end. You've really broken like this down. I got to give it to you. This is <laughs> I have. really specific, yeah. but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, so, so you have a kind of ecstatic end-to-end -end kind of approach, sure. you know. So, you, so you're heading towards the light. Versus, uh, modern life is is rubbish because things will come at you from all different angles, sure. uh, and you will be led 
away from the main corridor. You will get lost in the labyrinth. It's why someone like um, a writer like Franz Kafka was obsessed with corridors because they never went, you know, end to end. He got all of his characters get completely bewilderingly lost in corridors and can never find their way anywhere. And that's what we conceive of as as modern bureaucracy as well. So we always think about, you know, sitting in uh, corridors and bureaucratic institutions waiting for the, we've got the wrong piece of paper, we have to go to this office, uh, you have to go to that office, you know, anyone who's been through uh, tax stuff or, or trying to get documents to travel, uh, it's all immensely stressful and choridic, you know, we're kind of being thrown, thrown off to the side, it's not ecstatic at all. So uh, I do think there are kind of different uh, orientations of experience there. Sure. So- so, so, so what was so it was double loaded? Uh, what was that phrase? Tangential corridor, double loaded tangential corridor, double loaded tangential uh, corridor. I love that. That's amazing. That is so comedically specific to something that people probably don't yeah. give much thought to, but it it's actually exactly, extremely yes. descriptive. I love it. It, uh, it is useful, yeah. yeah, and it also fulfills the uh, cliche of the utterly pedantic <laughs> academic. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's great. Well, here's what I love. You didn't take it too seriously. Like you did, but it's, it's just serious enough where you understand how silly it is, but yet sure. you're like, no, get it yeah. right. It's double double layered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it, it's uh, I want to touch on a couple of things really quickly that are outside the horror realm, but I I just loved it in the book and I got to mention it. So, number 1, what was Francis Bacon's role in in the history of the corridor? I became really interested in the fact that um, so so we've talked a lot about how corridors are frightening and scary, and that's our that's how kind of that's our first stop. But actually, that's that, that's completely the opposite to how they were initially conceived. And nearly every utopia that's been written uh, from Francis uh, Bacon onwards, Thomas More's Utopia, but Francis Bacon's New Atlantis as well. They all build these communal structures um, for for kind of ideal living around the corridor um and that's what was was really interesting they're really specific the fact that you can build uh communal housing which is going to break down our terrible awful family neuroses and we're going to be transformed by this very architectural structure itself and that is really serious to understand for the original history of the of the corridor it's why asylums were built along corridors in the 19th century because it was felt that this was going to literally make you well you know you, you were going to be walking down a corridor towards reason again right. um, and the mad the madder you got the further away you got right. from from the exit um and the same the same with um hospitals as well or the same with with lots of utopian communities i mean if you you can still go to some uh in uh the states uh but but places that built um, communal living um, around corridors were really big in the 1840s and 1850s. And they all borrowed their ideas from Thomas More and from Francis Bacon. So that sort of sense of, of, of the utopian possibility of the corridor is why I think it goes so bad and so wrong in the 20th century and why we're so frightened of them. Right. Well, you know, and I think I, I love Francis Bacon because I, I talked about him when we talked about the Winchester Mystery House. So he does have a connection to corridors, the Masonic connection. I love that. I also did a, a sure. whole series on I wouldn't call it a utopian society, but it was definitely a communal society called Stell, Illinois. I did a whole thing on that. So anyone who's listening who's ever listened to that, here's how that connects to this story. You talk about um, – this building of utopias and we could get into is it Fourier is he the the French Fourier yeah. yeah so he was one yeah. of the you know one of the original designers of building these communal uh, buildings with that was heavily heavy on corridors and he was in you know it's, as he started to build these utopias it's interesting how he had kind of like weird science fiction stuff he kind of had interesting views towards sex and communal living and and polyamory I guess you'd call it so I, I, yeah. I love that about his history, which is kind of how some of these utopian societies always end up going. But one of the key places in the States is New Harmony, Indiana, and that became you know, sure. a setting for utopias. And why I'm mentioning that is because there was a big community conference in – it's still you know, a kind of a center for community mm. living. There, there's a university there that uh, kind of specializes in this because of its history that you talk about in the book. Sure. And the stuff from Stell, there's, there's an entire history collection from this community that I, that I talked about. 
in mm-hmm. in New Harmony, Indiana, which was based on this utopian idea based around corridors. I just thought that was just such an amazing connection. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's yeah. just really cool. And the idea that like corridors were supposed to be, you know, here's here's the connection is that corridors were supposed to be a location where people would kind of, you know, serendipitously in, you know, interact with each other. And it was supposed to kind of induce collective thought and people kind of, you know, as people you know, eat together and hang out together, they become closer as a community. And that was kind of the, the, the belief structure. Did I give it a good, you know, five, five minute uh, summary there? Was that pretty good? <laughs> But no, that, that that's really good. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think um, people underestimate just how important Fourier is for um, those kind of structures. I mean, he was certainly, you know, his his imagination was 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 incredible about these things and building huge structures that he called uh, phalanxes or phalansteries mm-hmm. um, had a really big influence, much bigger influence in America, utopian kind of living in the 1830s and 1840s than in France, where he was um, considered an absolutely you know strange lunatic. Um, and uh, yeah, it has a has a really big effect. And in fact, you know, where I'm talking to you to, talking to you now is a Fourier building. No kidding. Um, I, I, now, I live in a, in a post-war social housing structure in London, uh, which is modelled on uh, Le Corbusier, the French uh, architect who got his ideas directly from Fourier. And my estate, which I live on, has about 1,600 people, which is exactly the same number that Fourier suggested you needed for your ideal community. Right. Although so far... None of us seem to be having sex with anyone else. I was going to say, how which, far did you take his ideas? Like, what, what, should I come uh, visit? But, um, you know, it's, it's extraordinary. It's completely extraordinary that those kind of influences are are still embedded in our everyday life. So when I leave my front door, I've got it at the front of the book, actually, a photo down the the the, um, the, the corridor that I live on. Um it's, it's, it's a Fourier corridor. It's a utopian structure that I live in. It's it's a really I mean one of the things that was kind of amazing was just how far people took some of these ideas. So Russia really in in when they were embracing the communist ideas after the Bolshevik Revolution, this idea of social housing, everyone kind of going together, uh, you know, to kind of goes right along with the idea of communism. I love that idea, and then how the I believe it was the French and maybe uh, the English as well. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but. Basically, there's this thing in their book about how they built these corridors in the sky so you could traverse, like, the streets in the air in a way where all these housing complexes, at least that was the grand idea, where they were connected. So it's almost like a walkway in the sky that went for miles or kilometers, I think you guys call them over there. Uh, But it went for a very long length of stretch, you know, where people were – you would walk along this corridor and people's, you know, front doors were right there in this kind of attempt at communal living where everyone can kind of hang out. Uh, I love that idea. And as, you know, utopian society, who doesn't want to live in one of those? But what's always so funny is that all this stuff kind of descends into dystopian madness, you know, where it becomes a haven for drug dealers and crime and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So what is that descent? Why does that always happen? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it it doesn't. It it doesn't happen because it's all about um, our belief in um, particularly in America and in uh, the UK. So the Anglo-American model of what... Uh, the ideal living mm. is now for us now it's the house right? right so it's the it's the it's the personal private property it's your own front door people talk about this all the time i i just want my own front door and that's a sense of of, of the family being constructed inside the container of the house. Now, the Soviets understood that. That's what they called, you know, the bourgeois structure of uh, family living. And that's what the revolution set out very deliberately to destroy. They wanted to eliminate the the structure of the nuclear family because they understood that that reproduced certain conditions. So what they forced people to live only I think they gave them something like seven meters squared per person uh, and put them along kind of corridors in order to deliberately kind of separate out the family. So 
in their utopias, quite often there were creches that, that, where the children were separated from families for most of their um, young childhood, actually, um, whether you wanted to or not. And and this was a, a this was a deliberate kind of sense of we need to break open the family in order to do this. Now the the people who built social housing estates in um, Britain after the uh, Second World War. So there was lots of bombing uh, of cities. So they, you know, they, they all built these new kind of ideal uh, communities. They were actually quite a lot of them very politically motivated and they believed fully in this socialist utopia that you could, uh, in a sense, if you changed the space where people lived, uh, then you would change society itself. And if you invest in that, it does actually uh, survive. So there are places, you know, I'm living in one right now, which it survives as a community, but it's heavily invested. And in a sense, it's like a, um, I mean, I, it, it's, it's a listed building. It's protected historically now because it's such an unusual thing. But of course, the ideology of um, America and England is very much, and, and this is right too, very much about, but I need my private space. My, I want to protect my family behind my front door. That is not compatible with a kind of social housing model or a corridor model of building. So actually that kind of sense of, of why did it fail? Because we didn't invest in it, because we didn't believe in it. And because in England anyway, I don't know about the States, but in England, right-wing governments hated social housing because they embodied a certain kind of idea of what life and living should be. So they underinvested in them, they put problem families in them, they 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 didn't, they they segregated them, all those sorts of things, you know, that th those were kind of social choices. But actually, you know, you're talking about streets in the sky. Um, again, some are very successful, still existing, still kind of going. Um, you might have heard of the Barbican Complex in London, which is the most expensive place to live. But it's social housing. It's, it's, it's built on a kind of idea of, of, of this social collective. Um, and you can walk along streets in the sky with people's front doors off these long corridors. Um, it's just that you have to earn quite a lot of money to live there. Right. No, I, I guess there's, you know, it's funny because I live in a place that's a pretty large, it was actually, it was, again, it's similar to you, it was built as social housing. It was built as like an army barracks, mm. which then was privately, now it's privately owned. And I right, mean, it's, you right. know, it's, it's beautiful. It's, you know, it's, it's not a cheap place to live. It's very nice. The thing that that's, that I struggle with there is I think, you know, and I learned this when I went to New Harmony because they're very communal. <laughs> and I remember, I remember yeah. this very. So this will tell you a lot about me. And and I think this is this was really the the point I was trying to make on why these things kind of can descend into madness. Is that I don't know that I'm a communal living kind of person. And so I right. remember when I went to yeah. this thing, I was giving a presentation on on this community. And so I, I was ended up being in this cabin. So the cabin had. Oh, I think maybe five people in it. I didn't know. I knew one of the people. I went with a friend of mine, right. and I knew. So I didn't know three, and there might have been, you know, four, whatever. Uh, so let's say there's four other people. Well, they're not on my schedule, and I found that to be extraordinarily rude, to be quite frank. Uh, I want everyone to be on right. my schedule because that makes things really easy yeah, for me. Yeah, exactly. So I remember going to bed at like 10 to get up early for this thing, and then at like 11.30, you know, there's like, rah, 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 and this guy pulls up in a motorcycle right outside the door. He's, of course, locked his keys out. Why would he have brought his keys? So there's like a rapping at the right. door. And what was so funny is like this guy comes in, he's all dressed head to toe in this like leather biking outfit with his helmet on, right? And I'm expecting, you know, some kind yeah. of alpha male, this big macho guy to come out. And I'm like, oh, God, this well, how's this? I feel like I'm on a, an American reality show now. Like, now who just showed up to like, you know, cause drama in right. the house? So he pulls off his helmet and he's like a 65-year-old guy who's like totally mild-mannered <laughs> who just happened to forget his keys, right? And so, you know, he right, came right. in and he was, you know, very, very nice. But he was also the one who I remember in the morning told me like, I don't know that communal living is for you. And I was like, I never said that it was. <laughs> I'm not here to live in this cabin with you right. as nice as you are. Yeah, but, okay. You know, but my point yeah. is, you know, it's it's it, those types of spaces, you have to have kind of the mentality and the mindset to kind of live with a bunch of people around you is my point. Oh, I mean, totally. And th this is why most utopian communities don't last very long. Guys like me, um, is that what I you mean, want to you say? Have... <laughs> 
no, 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 no. It's just because you know we 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 we're, we're exactly like that. I mean, this is what happened in the kind of communal movement in the seventies as well. Uh, is that they very rapidly fell apart because they are completely kind of libertarian. But your idea of what liberty is and not right, is right. is completely different. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I mean my favourite ever story I think about those utopian buildings of the eighteen forties was the most expensive one uh, was built in stone um, for two hundred thousand uh, dollars and you know could house uh, 200 people and the guy who built it built a cottage next door just for himself <laughs> that's beautiful because <laughs> you know it's like yeah i love this idea i'm not participating right now. right uh, and that's usually what you know if you go to the all the all the brook farm stuff from the 1840s nathaniel hawthorne all those sorts of uh-huh. people you read any of their letters they're going God, this is really annoying. I can't cope with this at all. There's really irritating stuff going right, on next right. door. I can't concentrate. I can't write. Yeah. It's really annoying. Um, who, whose idea was this? It's crazy. Yeah. It's your uh, idea. And of course, in a way, <laughs> <laughs> it's your idea. Yeah. In, in a way, it's um, that's what, you know, the worst thing people talk about in uh, living in the collapsing um, communist state of the Soviet Union was the, just the terrible housing and the the, the, the kind of cardboard walls, um, the, the sense of being spied on all the time in your communal uh, living. And this was unbearable. It was insufferable. And I can quite understand that because, you know, it's you can't coerce people into into that. Maybe that was the fundamental flaw with all utopians is that they are coercive. Right, right, yeah. Well, and it's hard. Mm. I think it's hard to have a shared vision of utopia. We all, you know, we all the 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 idea of like, well, we all live together and everything's great, right? But how do you get there? Well, I go this way. Well, how do you go there? Well, I think this is. Yeah. You know, everyone has their own right. corridor towards utopia, and I think that that's where. Sure. This, you know, the dystopian ideas come into play is there's infighting trying to find utopia, um, yeah, which is very exactly. interesting. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's what I love is, is, you know, that's kind of was the idea behind this. And, you know, as we talked about, there's this kind of like this fall. And you mentioned, you know, to kind of as we close here to get it back into the horror theme, I loved how you describe hospitals and asylums as being, and to a lesser extent, you know, educational facilities being, you know, having being extraordinarily critic uh i love the asylum example you know and the hospital too because you do have this kind of hierarchy along the structure of the corridor and you know the, the idea that you know the the crazier you are you're at one end and then the more sane and by their standards and their language you know the closer you get towards the exit you know and that's your goal is to get out of there um and then it's all determined by how far you are away it's really fascinating, and it's it's this organization of you know mental and physical disabilities that were kind of it's this weird design. Like who gets to decide who gets to go where? Um, but someone <laughs> did, and we put them in a corridor, you know. And right. So how did that kind of structure um, end up leading to them being like the top places for haunted, you know, paranormal investigators and all this type of stuff? How did the, yeah. how did we get from you know this great idea of an asylum to you know you're going to die if you go go in there? <laughs> yeah, again, you know, the the asylum corridor is 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 one of the best ways of tracking uh, kind of changing attitudes towards those sorts of structures. So this is the in the early um, 19th century, um, the new asylum building is the very model of a new reform institution. So it's a bunch of very, very idealistic, very religious, uh, very committed uh, people who looked at what were called madhouses and just thought this is completely, you know, in, in, uh, insupportable. We just throw people into cages, essentially, uh, and treat them like animals. Whereas actually what we want to do is appeal to their reason. You know, all we need to do is sort of, sort of say, you're you're still a human being. You might be uh, suffering a breakdown, but we're actually going to encourage you, persuade you back into um, uh, the community of of reason again. And so it was a bunch of people who said, well, actually, we can do that through an institutional structure. If we build uh, a new kind of asylum, we give people rooms um, that don't have bars on the window uh, and that persuade them to become more social and more communal. So build very wide corridors. Uh, The corridor becomes the treatment centre. 
uh, in these uh, huge buildings. So all of that kind of idealism um, started on a very small scale in prisons and asylums. Uh, and then by the 1860s, every single state in um, America had to build um, a vast asylum, which was built on this corridor plan so that you they were often half a mile long, you know, these even longer, these kind of structures. Uh, and the idea was that, you, you know, the madder you were, the further away, but you could be persuaded. It was a persuasive kind of idea. That the architecture itself would help you along uh, the, 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 towards the, towards sanity, and then you could leave, then you could exit. Um, so that was kind of a, the, the ideal. Now, again, by the 1960s, the anti-psychiatry movement are saying, you know what? We think these buildings themselves create a kind of madness. Once you're inside these institutions, they're so big, they're so rambling, they're so total, you become so dependent on them that actually they're creating a kind of madness. So this was a you know a radical new idea. And actually very, very quickly, because they were so expensive, the asylum started to be abandoned. So we have these huge kind of structures um, that um, you, you can go to, you know, famous one in Pennsylvania. There's a famous one in uh, along the Hudson Bay outside New York. Um, they have these vast structures that are left kind of to ruin. And what they are, are symbols of a failed kind of ideal. And they represent insanity, but in a sense, the, the kind of the madness that we ourselves produce with this kind of passion and this commitment to believe that we can reform people and change people uh, in a way that became increasingly coercive. Of course, we associate asylums now with, you know, electroconvulsive therapy and with all kinds of vicious kind of uh, things. But those are also, you know, the longest corridors that were ever built. Uh, when I talked to um, a former asylum nurse who used to have to use a bicycle to, to get between appoint appointments because these corridors were over a quarter of a mile long. Um, and that sort of sense of, of, of just the vastness of this machine, which was, you know, the ideal was to make people sane, but actually what it did was drive you crazy and drive everyone who worked in them crazy too. Well, and you mentioned, I mean, that's a really funny concept. You mentioned that the asylum at Colony Hatch is the longest corridor in Europe. Um, so that it's about yeah. six miles uh, in nine, is it kilometers? Is, am I saying that correctly? Is it kilometers? Well, we use miles you... too. We use miles. We're, we're, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not, we're not European, as you know. Right. <laughs> hey <-oh. laughs> Let's not go right. there. So, oh, so you guys did a whole switchover. You, you were like, we're done with kilometers. You know, now that we're out of Europe. We're... Oh, we, we refuse to. <laughs> we refuse to accept these European, these these evil metrics. We, we, we stand with the Americans right. with miles. <laughs> and, and inches we hate these french german ideas right. we, we don't well with them. i'm glad to have you on board there uh <laughs> you know it's 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 funny because you know one thing i want to touch on that's very similar to the asylum were the prisons i forgot to mention prisons when i made my laundry list of very similar <laughs> things but prisons right. were i think the, the 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 front runner to asylums they're the 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 precursor i should say the because these, you know, the corridors were structured in kind of an ingenious way to really have the guards keep an eye on everyone. I mean, talk about a bureaucracy. You literally have cells coming off the corridor to pack in as many people as possible. They come to a little junction that's a you know, small little circle, and you can look down these long corridors and make sure everything is in order. Uh, I mean, you know, that's kind of a brilliant use of the corridor to, to keep an eye on everybody. Yeah, I mean, prisons were um, very important, for again, for the same group of reformers. So people who believed that actually, you know, these these shouldn't be called prisons, but they should be called penitentiaries because the people who are going into them are penitents. And if you persuade them uh, by various um, coercive means and also um, just by the architecture itself, you can bring them back from their sin, from their failure into um, citizenship itself. Now, the great thing about, you know, those early corridors, so you, you get these radial designs. So, you know, a central kind of um, uh, place where all of the 
um, surveillance goes on and they look down all of these kind of corridor angles uh, so you can see down every single wing you can see one person supposedly can see everywhere that's why they were called panopticons uh, to be able to see everywhere the panopticon um, so this um, was a kind of model idea and actually when they were first set up there was supposed to be one person per cell that's why they're constructed like that. Uh, they are supposed to be in solitary confinement. They're supposed to reflect on their sin. Uh, they, they should become penitent uh, and you keep an eye on them. And you, again, you persuade them back into society. You get more reward if the more you, more socialising, the more you uh, behave and so on. Unfortunately, they found very quickly that being in solitary confinement for 23 hours in a cell on your own drives you mad and uh, is likely to make you incredibly resentful about authority in society and to drive you to um, try and kill your captors as quickly as possible. <laughs> so this this was a bit of a failure. And then also, of course, they couldn't cope with the numbers of um, people being imprisoned. And this is the classic story that you have a structure that is actually very quickly overrun, overpopulated. You're getting two or three people in the same cell. Uh, communications are starting to happen in surreptitious ways. Uh, you get internal power structures that aren't the central um, structure of the prison, uh, and it becomes a kind of catastrophic uh, failure. I mean, the, the Eastern um, Penitentiary in Pennsylvania, I think it is, which is still standing and which is opened at Halloween for all kinds of crazy things and lots of stories about hauntings and so on go on big kind of um, event in the uh, Halloween calendar. But that's a perfect example. So it started off as a model of just five radial wings. And when by the time it closed in 1969, it had 15 radial wings crammed in, in all kinds of different um, higgledy-piggledy kind of ways. No one could see anything. No one knew what was going on. No one even knew how many prisoners there were. It was so kind of overwhelmed, you know, so that it's, it's and it was sold for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> to the uh, to, to to the estate, you know, as as this kind of disastrous kind of building that they needed to get rid of. So it's this this is why these ruins are so evocative for us, whether they're asylums or um, whether they're prisons, is that they are kind of symbols of great hope, which become a kind of emblem of the failure of reform. Really. Right. Well, and and they're they're kind of the perfect culmination of everything we've talked about. Like there's something that started out, uh, you know, as like a utopian ideal that kind of collapsed in on itself. It's got these long corridors, lots of tragic and uh, tragic events. Misery took place there, which sometimes gives rise sure. to ghost stories or this idea of dread or some otherworldly entity taking it over. If you go there at night. Um, now you got a haunted place and you got a maze. A lot of these things, as you mentioned, they were hastily built. Uh, it's hard to navigate around them. Uh, you know, all these cells with unknown, you know, monsters and voids leading to whatever. Um, le voila, we have the dread, the angst, the corridor that we that we were talking about. Um, so it's it all comes full circle, which is a very strange shape given the the tra traditional shape of a <laughs> corridor. Um, but I love it. This is an incredibly, highly interesting topic, um, despite what people, you know, if you get rid of your prejudiced beliefs on critic structures. Um, Dr. Luckhurst is changing all that. We're going to get into a critic society. We're living in the pre-critic era. I'm glad to have been a part of it. I want to get on board of this as early as possible. So do you have time to stick around and talk about pop culture and zombies? Yeah, sure. Oh, great. Awesome. So we'll do that. I'm going to put it on the Patreon feed. Uh, this is going to be a great conversation about zombies, one of my favorite things. But before we do that, how can people get in touch with you? And again, you're not an amateur frog. You're a pro frog. At least that's on Skype. <laughs> I assume you're pro frog on other social media outlets. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm pro frog on Twitter. You can always talk to me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter most of the time, like everyone else in the world. Um, but, you know, you can just uh, hunt, hunt me out on the web. Um, just search my name, Roger Luckhurst, and you'll find me. Uh, I have a web page at um, my place where I work at Birkbeck College. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to, always happy to talk to people. Uh, and how do people get a hold of your books? Um, well, they're published by um, Reaction Press in uh, England, and they are distributed in the States. Uh, so they have deal, I think, with Columbia. Um, so, you know, they, they should be available on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. And the the one with the specific book on corridors, I imagine there's a big, catchy, fancy title for that. 
what is it called? It's called actually Corridors. Period. Passages of Modernity. Period. Passages of okay, Modernity. Got it. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah. yeah that's awesome. Awesome. You can pick that up anywhere. Uh, Roger, this has been absolutely fascinating, um, mostly because you're the pro frog. You didn't bounce around a lot, and I like that you stayed right on task. Uh, this incredible conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like the show, subscribe to it. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, tune in. Now we're on Spotify. Easy to find. You want links? I got them. Fascinatingnouns.com is the webpage. You can find links to any of your favorite podcasting platforms. And I've started a Patreon feed. Now, it is only $5 a month for incredible exclusive audio content. You are going to find... As an addition to this episode, a great episode on zombies and pop culture, perfect for Halloween listening. There's also several other great Halloween-themed episodes, including one by the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. It's a, a an audio play about Herbert West, Reanimator. Uh, it's part part of their their long form version. It's great, a lot of fun, great for uh, for Halloween. And you can also find the show on social media if you want to find out what we're doing behind-the-scenes stuff, things that we're doing outside of, of the show itself. You can find that as well, bottom of the Fascinating Nouns page. Of course, we've got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube for some of our Fascinating Nouns videos. And if you want a newsletter to find out about upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes, other projects that I'm involved with, there's a link for the newsletter at the bottom of the page as well. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out what I'm up to. Thank you for listening. And of transmission.